Hey everyone, let's ramble for a little bit. When you have a broken bone, you need to go to the doctor. If you want to draft your last will and testament, you need a lawyer. If you have a pipe that has burst in your house, you better call a plumber. The particular problem you have will determine the kind of person you need to contact. A doctor isn't going to do you any good when you have a burst pipe in your house. A lawyer isn't going to do you any good when you have a broken bone, and a plumber isn't going to do you any good when you want to draft your last will and testament. You need the right kind of person with the right kind of training to fix the right problem. Last time we talked about the big problem that we all have. We talked about the fall into sin and how that affects all of us. We are all born with a sinful nature which causes us to sin, and because of that sin, we deserve to die. Not only physically, but also eternally in hell. And because there is sin in this world, we see all sorts of problems. There are wars and famines and diseases. Throughout history, different people and nations have committed horrible atrocities. We deal with racism, classism, sexism, and inequality of all types. This is a big problem. So who are we going to call to fix that kind of problem? Who has the qualifications, trainings, or characteristics necessary to fix the problem of sin? Well, the Bible has an answer. It tells us who to call on. The Bible tells us there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus the Son of God. Today we are going to dive into an episode about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now before you think to yourself, well, we talk about Jesus all the time, I don't need to listen to this episode, well, you might be surprised. We're going to get into some pretty amazing stuff as we talk about how Jesus is uniquely qualified to deal with our problem of sin. So with that, let's get into it. As always, I have with me my co-hosts, Pastor Ross Henze. Hello, everyone. And Pastor Tom Fricke. I'm glad to be here. Our episode today is covering the second person of the Trinity. We're going to consider who he is and what he has done for us. We call the second person of the Trinity God's Son. Now, Tom, could you unpack that title a little bit? Why do we call the second person of the Trinity God's Son? And what does that tell us about the nature of the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity? Well, I suppose the first and simplest way to answer that question would be to say that the the Bible calls him God's Son. Um, And uh, when the angel for instance uh, came to announce to Mary that she would give birth to a child, Uh, He said he will be the Son of the Most High. 
the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. John the Baptist called him the Son of God as well. And Scripture just talks that way about Jesus. But I think there's a little bit more to that, too. Um, there's a relationship between Jesus and the Father. Uh, what the Father is, that is what Jesus is. He reflects the nature of the Father. He is God equally with the Father. So the Athanasian Creed puts it this way, what the Father is, so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son uncreated. The Father is infinite, the Son infinite. The Father eternal, the Son is eternal. So just as the Father is the creator, the maker of all things, we learn in the Gospel of John, the book of Colossians, that Paul wrote that um, uh, all things were made through him. So Jesus Christ uh, reflects the nature of the Father, and he is equally God with the Father. Yeah, thanks for quoting some of our confessions, you know, the Athanasian Creed. And uh, Stephen Colbert, the great Lutheran theologian in the Colbert Report, you know, uh, he uh, expressed it this way. Somebody was trying to convince him that Jesus wasn't God, that he was described as the Son of God. And Stephen Colbert says, the son of a duck is a duck. <laughs> and so the son of God is God. Is God. So, and we'll, we'll talk about Jesus being God more later in this episode. So the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity is compared to the relationship of a father to a son. So, Ross and Tom, what would you say if someone said to you that the son is inferior to the father? We'll let Ross respond first. I could understand why someone might look at that and, and think that simply because they're, they're looking at it from a human, human angle. But I think what you really have to do is take a look at what the Bible has to say. Uh, and what we really have when you talk about our Trinity is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all equal. They're all equal with, I would call them, different job descriptions. Uh, one God with three distinct persons, each with a little bit of a different job description. You have God the Father, the Creator, God the Son, the Redeemer and God the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, the one who creates and strengthens faith. And for me, the biggest thing is, is when you look at what the Bible has to say about this relationship, when you listen to what Jesus has to say about the relationship, there is no inferiority there. So Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10. And in John 14, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So they, they are equal, I, and they are uh, all one and the same. It's, it's a mystery that's at times hard for human minds to grasp, so we rely on what Scripture tells us, and it, and, it see, and it says very distinctly that they are one, they are equal. Yeah, thank you, Ross. And it's important to review this truth because there are some still so-called Christian church bodies that will teach that Jesus is less than the Father. The two big ones are the Mormon Church and the Jehovah's Witness Church. Um, and we would pull some of those passages that you quoted, Ross. You know, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We would uh, pull those passages out and say, no, they're completely united and equal in the Godhead. So, I know we, we, this may seem like a basic truth, but we always want to make sure we have this firm. So, Tom, anything you wanted to add to that question before we move on? 
Well, it, it seems that uh, we need to be reminded of this all the time, that God and the Father are of equal deity. Uh, the enemies of Jesus needed to be corrected on that, and that's why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He was making that very point, but then he also had to do it among his disciples. Uh, and so when, you know, he explained, as his uh, Pastor Enzi mentioned, that anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, he's explaining this, uh, because uh, the disciples still needed to understand the nature and the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. It took a while for that to sink in because they were looking at uh, the humanity of Jesus. That's what they saw. And they needed to be reminded that the deity of Jesus was hiding there underneath his humanity as he walked this earth in front of his disciples. Yeah, and I think after he rose from the dead, that's when it probably finally clicked, you know. Yeah. All right. So the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was sent on a mission, a mission to save humanity. Ross, can you explain when and how the second person, the person of the Trinity became Jesus Christ, the person we talk about so much in church? Well, that's a great question, and... I could give you a very short answer, or I could give you a more detailed answer, so I'll give you the short one first. When he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he was born to Mary, um, that's when he, he became Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the one that we know. But I also can't help but go back to creation when we recognize immediately after the fall into sin uh, when God promised that he was going to send a descendant to the woman who was going to uh, crush the power of Satan and save us. Uh, because God said human beings have to be perfect, and we're not. We yep. can't do it. So, hence, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to have him become human. I'm going to have him live the perfect life that you can't do. I'm going to punish him so I don't have to punish you. And then through his suffering, death, and resurrection, our guilt goes on to him. His holiness comes on to us because God says human beings have to be perfect. We're not. Hence the role of Jesus. Yeah. Thank you very much. Tom, anything you wanted to add to that one? Well, the miracle of the virgin birth is, is something that I think um, emphasizes for us that there really and truly is nobody else like Jesus. And uh, it... it helps us to recognize is if if we're able to 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 recognize that Jesus was born of a virgin fathered by God uh, we're able to recognize that yes he he was indeed unique um, one of a kind God's one and only son his only begotten son you could say uh, that he is somebody that there is no other human being who is like him at all because he is not just human. He is also completely 100% true God at the same time. Yep, yep. And uh, some of the things you mentioned, Tom, earlier about what the angel said when he announced Jesus' conception to Mary, you know, he said, he'll be the son of the Most High, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So... Uh, unique, one of a kind. So, now, Tom, could you try and impress upon the audience just how lowly and humbling this must have been for the Son of God, the taking on of human flesh? Yeah, we like to 
romanticize, I think, uh, the time when Jesus was born. And uh, realistically, it, it was not easy for Mary or for Joseph that night. But uh, just think about this. Jesus became man. He became a human being. His diapers needed to be changed. He was subject to the same kinds of things that we, uh, with our humanity, have to deal with. So uh, we, we, we sometimes maybe romanticize his youth a little bit, but he did not perform any miracles until that first miracle in Cana. His first 30 years, Jesus grew up as a normal child as a human being here in this world. Um, his first miracle was uh, at the kickoff of his ministry but then when he did perform miracles throughout his ministry, he, he didn't do it to serve himself. He didn't make life easier on himself. He walked from place to place. Uh, he became hungry, so he ate. He grew tired, so he slept. He faced temptation, just as we face temptation. So all of these things basically show us uh, Jesus had to go through some difficult things as we had have to as human beings as well yeah it's not kind of not like the greek heroes of old or something where they have this glorious mighty life no he was uh went through everything a human did one of our one of our pastors at one of our circuit meetings said somebody said it this way you know would you if all the slugs were evil would you a human become a slug to save the slugs <laughs> you know i thought that was kind of a a cool way to put it, you know, but it expresses the truth that, you know, this is the glorious son of God and he was willing to humble himself, make himself lowly like a human being to save us. So, all right. So the son, Russ, please comment. I just wanted to add, just add one little thought, uh, just how amazing it is that God would give up everything and come down here to earth. And it really drives home for me when you start to think about the season of Lent. When you go through Jesus' passion history, he was spit on, he was beaten, he was nails driven into his hands and feet, people calling for his crucifixion. And when you begin to realize exactly what he went through, Lord willing, each and every one of us sit there and think, I can't believe he did that for me. Yeah. He was willing to endure that for me. Mm -hmm. My goodness, what an amazing God to give up everything to come and do that for somebody like me. Yeah, it adds amazing depth when we talk about the love of God, when we think about it in the concrete terms of Jesus and what he did for us. Yeah. Okay, so the Son of God took on human flesh he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. We call this the incarnation, the, the incarnate, the taking on of flesh. And so we say that Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% human. Now, that doesn't make much sense. How can Jesus Christ be entirely God yet entirely human? But before we talk about that, Let's explain to some of the reasons why we believe and confess that Jesus is God and human. We've already talked about them and touched on them a little bit, but let's say them explicitly to get them out there. We usually say we believe in Jesus is God and human because he does things only God can do, but he also does things human do. 
the Bible calls him God, but the Bible also calls him human. And in the Bible, we see that he has the attributes or characteristics of God, and we see he has the attributes and characteristics of a human. So let's expand on those three points a little bit. Ross, could you share with the audience an instance or an example from Jesus' life where he shows he is God? Well, there are a number. I, I think when Jesus was able to read the minds of, of knew what was in the heart of people, uh, and he knew what they were thinking and what they were doing. Uh, the fact that he walked on water, the fact that he healed people of their illnesses, uh, are all examples of this of his divine attributes yeah yeah thank you all right now ross on the flip side could you share with the audience an instance or an example of something that jesus did that was human something that humans do well he walked he talked he ate he he drank he felt emotion uh he cried you know when he uh, found out about lazarus so um, he had all of these same characteristics that we have. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, now let's move on to the second point. Not only does the Bible record instances of Jesus doing things that only God can do, but it also comes right out and says that he's God. It says it plain as day. Tom, could you share some passages with the audience where Jesus is very explicitly called God? Well, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is something we've mentioned already, and that is that the angel said to Joseph, he'll be called Emmanuel, that is God with us. And there's a reason why that name was given in Scripture, and uh, it's referring back to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. But that is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, the angel announced to the shepherds out in the fields, Today, in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is Christ, or the Messiah the Lord. Uh, again, a clear identification of him with God. Uh, he's God's one and only son in the very famous John three sixteen passage. At the beginning of John's gospel, we read too that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word logos referring to Jesus, the word was God. And at the end of John's gospel, uh, you know, throughout John's gospel, the point is Jesus is fully God, just as uh, God the Father is God. But at the end, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you might have life through his name. So again and again, the Bible talks about him as God. And then one, one last thing that I think of too, the book of Revelation, the very first chapter, um, God the Almighty says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who is and who was and who is to come. You go to the very last chapter of Revelation and Jesus Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the God, the Almighty, who is referred to in chapter one, is clearly described in exactly the same terms as Jesus, the Son of God, in Revelation chapter 22. And that, that too, that, that reminds us that God the Father, Jesus Christ, are equally God. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Tom. I I had never thought about that Revelation one, how it talks about the Lord and then talks about Jesus with the same term. So I learned something today. Thank you for that. 
So now one passage that I would like to zero in on is John 8, verse 58. In this passage, Jesus is debating with some of the Jews, and he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. In my opinion, this is Jesus' most significant claim to divinity. You know, we could argue it's just an opinion, but that's my opinion. Um, Ross, could you explain to the audience Jesus' statement here? He says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. He didn't say, I was. He says, I am. And that's really uh, an emphasis on the eternity of his being. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it, it's just, he is, he's, bef- he's never changed. He's been like this from the very beginnings before creation. So... Um, that's the part that I think it emphasizes, the eternity of his being. He has always been here. What was Abraham, 3,500 years yep. before Christ? Yep. And so he says, I am. It wasn't I was. He says, I am. Yep. And I think that's the emphasis. Yeah, I am the one that exists. Tom, anything you'd like to add to that? Well, you can think about Jesus' eternity like a, a circle. There is no beginning or no end. It's not like uh, his life was a straight line. I suppose you could argue in a way that his life here on earth was like a straight line. Mm-hmm. But as far as his eternity is concerned, as God, uh, there is no beginning. There is no end to Jesus, just as there is with God the Father. He says, I'm that way, I'm God, when mm-hmm. he says that that uh, I am uh, eternal. So there, that, that, that just helps to explain or illustrate it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And another uh, aspect to this statement that, you know, a person wouldn't get unless they've studied Greek and Hebrew like us, is, you know, back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asks God and he says, you know, what should I tell the Israelites? Who, what is your name? And God, speaking to Moses, says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. If you look at that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says, ego I me. You know, and when Jesus here in John 8 quotes that, he too says, ego I me. He's claiming the divine name for himself. And so if you ever have the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door, you know, they, they might try and tell you that Jesus is inferior to the Father. And the Hebrew word for I am is kind of Yehyeh or Jehovah. And you can say, well, Jesus claimed the divine name for himself. Very clearly claims that he is divine. Okay, so the Bible very clearly uh, calls Jesus God. It's not really a question. But it also very clearly calls Jesus a human being. Tom, could you share a few passages or instances where Jesus is called a human being? Initially, I think it... Right away of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus says, or uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews says of Jesus that he shared in our humanity. But there are other places where Jesus simply calls himself the Son of Man, uh, clearly indicating that uh, he wants to emphasize his, his human birth in those places. Or uh, throughout Scripture, he is referred to as the Son of David. He is that emphasizes the fact that he is a descendant of David, but it also emphasizes for us 
the humanity of Jesus as well. Uh, so those are the ones that I think of. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so we've talked about Jesus doing things that only God can do, but also doing things humans do. We talked about the Bible calling Jesus God and calling him human. So final point, and this point is very similar to the first point we made, but Jesus has the attributes or characteristics of God. He has the, and he also has the attributes or characteristics of a human being. So, Ross, could you explain to the audience some of the characteristics of God that Jesus has? Some of the characteristics of God, well, he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He could, he, could, uh, he could do things which only God could do when he performed the miracles. I mean, I can't walk on water. I can't change water into wine. So when you begin to look at uh, some of these characteristics of God, he's eternal, he is so on and so forth. We've, we've talked about many of those. Yeah, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, the same characteristics that apply to God apply to Jesus. All right, Tom, could you explain to the audience some of the attributes or characteristics of a human that Jesus has? We've talked about this to a certain degree, too. He you know, he uh, ate, he slept, and all of those kinds of things, the normal activities that a human being does. But I, th I think about the passage in Luke chapter 2 where after he is in the temple uh, speaking with the, as a, as a boy, 12 years old in the temple, his parents lose track of him. Jesus is there and he's asking questions of the rabbis there in the temple before Mary and Joseph find him. People are astonished at his wisdom, but it does say after that, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke makes that point about Jesus. And this helps us to understand, uh, think a little bit about what we call his state of humiliation. He had the power as God, but he didn't use it. He chose not to make constant use of his power and majesty and his wisdom as God. So as far as his humanity is concerned, Jesus is in the temple asking questions in order to be able to understand the scriptures about himself. Uh, as uh, God, he could clearly have tapped into the wisdom that was his from eternity, but as a human being, he chose not to do that. And it's kind of a mind-boggling thing to think about it in those kinds of terms, but he willingly chose not to make full and constant use of his power and wisdom as God. So I, I think about that. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. A very interesting statement by St. Luke. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. All right, so I think we've adequately demonstrated from the scriptures that Jesus is God and human. But even though scripture proclaims it, I think sometimes we and people get hung up on this. I mean, how can Jesus be 100% God and 100% human? That doesn't make sense. And sometimes it seems like the attributes of God and the attributes of a human seem to contradict one another. For example, one time in Bible study when I was a vicar, I had a man who was hung up on this. We were talking about how Jesus is God, and one of my students kept saying, but God can't die, so how does this work? He was hung up on the fact that God is immortal, but humans are mortal, able to die. 
So, Ross and Tom, I guess I'll just leave this question open-ended. How can we resolve this apparent contradiction? Or do you have an analogy that can help explain how Jesus could be 100% God and 100% human at the same time? We'll let uh, Ross go first. Well, I guess I would answer that by saying this is one of the great mysteries that are that's present in the Bible. The, the fancy term that we use is the dual nature of Christ. So he is both God and at the same time man. But I think uh, Tom kind of referred to this a little bit earlier. His divine attributes, when he began his, his ministry, his divine attributes, he set off to the side for a time. Uh, and he gave us glimpses of that power and glory when he performed miracles, when he was transfigured on the mountain, and so on and so forth. But he primarily put those divine attributes off to the side so that he might humble himself and carry out his mission, which was to suffer and die. And then after his, you know, at his resurrection, you know, he reclaims those divine attributes and as he now lives on in heaven he has all of those divine attributes all the time yeah tom anything you'd like to add it, it might be a little bit helpful to define what death is i mean physical death is when the soul leaves the body so mm -hmm. what happened is that uh, his body died i mean in that sense you could say uh, i guess god died but it doesn't mean that as god he ceased to exist god uh, still continued to to exist and his divine nature the divine nature of Jesus Christ continued to be there yep yeah yeah the divinity experienced death you know the separate the unnatural separation of body and soul that is the consequence of sin so yes God died you know we can say that and the you know Saint Peter says to the Jews you killed the author of life so you know that's basically saying you killed God um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how we resolve it. One analogy, I think Martin Luther maybe used this analogy of thinking of the divine and human nature and realizing that every analogy limps, but he said, think of like a piece of metal being heated up. You know, when, when metal is heated up, it's still metal. It doesn't lose the properties of being metal, but now it's all glowing and it also has the properties of this, this heat. Um, so, you know, when, when God took on human flesh, you know, he still had the properties of a human being, still had the properties of a God, um, not a God, the God. Um, so, but again, every analogy limps, but sometimes maybe that can help. But enough about that. We can move on. Even though this truth can go beyond our comprehension, when we look at the Bible, we are told why Jesus had to be both God and human in order to save us. So let's talk about Jesus' divine nature first. For what reasons was it necessary for our salvation that Jesus be God? We will let Tom tackle that one. He had to be God uh, because I can't die even if I'm perfect for the sins of anybody else. I'm not holy. That should be clear and evident and obvious, but even if I were, um, my death wouldn't count for anybody else's sins. So only God can die for someone else. Only his 
life is precious. His death needed to be both innocent and it had to be costly in order for it to make payment for the sins of the entire world. Yeah, it needed to be a big enough sacrifice, big enough payment, however you want to phrase it. But, you know, it, it required the divinity sacrificing himself to pay for everybody's sins. Yeah. Um, Ross, did you want to respond to that one at all? All right. So we'll give you this one. It was also necessary for our salvation that Jesus be human. So, Ross, could you explain why Jesus had to be human in order to save us? Well, I think, isn't that the $64,000 question? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he become human? Why did he have to suffer and die? Um, and, you know, I, I often wonder, why didn't, he, why didn't God just snap his fingers and declare us all to be saved? Why didn't he just do some other way to save us? Why send his son? Why have him come to earth? Why become human? Why have him suffer and die? And it goes back to the very truth. God expects his creation to be perfect. He demands that we be perfect. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He, he tells us that, and we're not. So he said, I, instead of just destroying my creation and starting all over again, I'll send my son. I'll have him become human. I'll have him live the perfect life you never could. And instead of punishing my creation, I'll punish my son. And the fact that he is perfect and holy his holiness will now count for everybody else. He will bear the payment and give his life for everyone. So that's why he came, uh, to do what we could not do so that we could live forever with him in heaven. Yeah. Yeah, you touched on, on this point, but, uh, uh, you know, in Galatians it says, He was born of a woman born under law to redeem those under the law. One of the things you touched on is Jesus had to be holy. He had to come and live under the law. You know, God is above the law, you know. Um, but he subjected himself to his own law so he could fulfill that law for us. So that is a little bit about why Jesus had to be God and human being. Um, Tom, did you want to add anything to that question before we move on? You can move on. All right. Now, let's apply these truths to ourselves. For what reason is the truth that Jesus is God and a human comforting? We'll let uh, Tom go first. He knows me. Uh, and not just because he's God and he knows everything. He knows me because he's, uh, he, he is a human being. And he's gone through the same lousy things and experienced the same temptations that I have just without sin. And so he's got the power to help, but not just the power to help. He has the empathy to understand what I have to deal with in my life. I, I can pray to him. Because he's God, he's never more than a prayer away. Uh, because he's man, he gets it when I speak to him from my heart. Yeah. And that's really comforting for me. Yeah, Ross, what would you like to add? I think... Uh, it just This is what it took to secure our salvation uh, for Jesus to be both God and man. As God, he understood God's demand for perfection. He, he knows what that is. He knows what it's like. And as a human being, he also knew what it was like to be tempted. He, under, he understands what we go through and willingly gave up himself for us. Um, 
I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to fully contemplate just how amazing that is uh, until we see our Savior face to face. Yeah, yeah. One reason it's comforting to me, to me, to me it adds a, a closeness to God. You know, he's not some distant, far-off being in the sky. No, he has experiential knowledge of what it means to be a human. He, he knows what I'm going through. And when he came to this earth, you know, it was God in human flesh. You could, uh, you could touch him, talk with him, you know, see him. And uh, God understands and wants to be close with us. And even though Jesus isn't here with us now, he comes to us in like the Lord's Supper, you know. Uh, he, he, it's a closeness to God that can be very comforting. So that's, that's something that I find comforting. All right, that is our episode for today. We plumbed the depths of the mystery of the nature of Jesus. He is God and human, and he had to be this unique individual to save us. Now that we've talked about how Jesus was uniquely qualified to save us, next time we're going to talk about what he did to save us. We'll talk about Jesus' work of redemption. Until next time, as always, God be with you.